Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Some good news this week when it comes to the treatment of COVID-19. Studies involving 1,700 patients showed that deaths were significantly reduced by the use of corticosteroids, raising hopes that cheap and widely available drugs could become standard treatments for severe cases of COVID-19. In this case, it works because the steroids help in dampening an overactive immune system and helps the body avoid that cytokine storm which could cause a lot of trouble for people. For more on how these steroids are helping in the fight against coronavirus, we'll speak to Joseph Walker, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Back in June, there was a United Kingdom study that found that dexamethasone, which is uh, one of these generic steroids, has been around since the 60s. It's very cheap. It's widely available. Doctors are really familiar with it. And this UK study found that the use of this drug in hospitalized patients who are very sick on ventilators reduced deaths by about a third. This is back in June. And this is a big surprise, really welcome surprise, because it was the first drug found to significantly reduce deaths in COVID-19. And so that was really sort of a bit of a shift in sort of the thinking about how to use these drugs and what drugs to use. But there were still sort of some questions lingering around how robust these data were. It's just one study. These results really need to be confirmed. And so today what we have is a bunch of doctors and scientists convened by the World Health Organization analyzed seven different studies using a whole bunch of different corticosteroids and found really consistent results across all of and essentially that patients who received these drugs uh, were hospitalized and in pretty bad condition, had their risk of death reduced by about uh, a third compared to patients getting either a placebo or just the usual standard of care. So it really confirms those earlier results and also opens up the use of many more corticosteroids, not just dexamethasone. And the reason why they say this helps out, because they're anti-inflammatory drugs, They say that it dampens the effects of an overactive immune system. So a lot of times you had been hearing about this cytokine storm where your own immune system is going haywire trying to fight off the infection and it's doing more bad than good. So they're saying that these steroids help out in that area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we've talked about the cytokine storm thing before. And actually, one of the doctors I was speaking with for the article today is saying that, well, these cytokines, these proteins that are involved in the uh, immune in the, in the immune response are sort of part of the problem here. They think it's not just these cytokines. It's a whole bunch of different things going on with the immune system. And that may be why these steroids are having a beneficial effect because they're sort of blunt instruments. They sort of dampen the immune system broadly. They're not very specific. And that's one of the reasons why doctors have been a little bit reluctant to use them. But it seems like that sort of broad, blunt effect is maybe why they're having such a benefit in these patients where their immune systems are just going crazy. You're going haywire. And usually your immune system is the thing that you're counting on to fight the virus. And in this case, it's just doing way more than you need it to. And it's actually turning on yourself, sort of like friendly fire, as one of the doctors we talked to uh, put it. So far, we don't really have any drugs that have been proven effective to treat the earliest stages of COVID-19. So in the guidance, this is really only for the sickest patients. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of times people that might be on ventilators. And they're also recommending that this not be used for milder cases even. 
So COVID, as you all know, it's a tricky virus, right? So we think that there are different stages of the disease, right? In the earliest stages, when you want your immune system to kick in and, and sort of get rid of the virus, it doesn't work as well as we want it to. And then after time, the immune system starts working way more than we want it to, right? And so what this guidance is saying is that in those earliest stages, when you want the immune system to kind of kick in, you want to avoid these steroids because they, in that stage, might actually have a harmful effect, right? It'll be dampening your immune system when you want it to kill the virus and really to wait until you're sort of in these later stages of the disease when it would be helpful. It just seems like a very delicate balance in fighting this, but at least now we're kind of confirming that with the help of these steroids, we can treat the worst parts of it, uh, you know, when it gets really bad in these patients. So good news all around. And as this is just kind of how it keeps going, we're just going to keep learning more and more about how to treat this virus the longer we have it with us, the longer we encounter it. So good news on all of this for now. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? It's like, I think we're finding that in treating this disease that it's really threading the needle and hitting your spots at the right moments and doing it in a really precise way. And so we're sort of figuring that out as we go along, but hoping people who are the sickest, you know, these are also the people who are at biggest risk of death. And so there's a lot of room to help those folks. And so it's good to have anything that will um, help reduce death there. Joseph Walker, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. As states continue to formulate their plans for reopening for business, California is facing a backlash for its new tiered system for reopening businesses during the pandemic. Counties throughout the state used to be on a watch list and had to adjust accordingly, but now they're in a color-coded system of yellow, orange, red, and purple, with purple being the worst designation, meaning that coronavirus is still widespread throughout that county. Critics say that the system hits some businesses harder than others, And gym owners continue to fight with the state over whether they can reopen or not. For more on the plan to reopen California, we'll speak to Chris Woodyard, L.A. Bureau Chief for USA Today. Just as you pointed out, it's four colors. And basically, all the populous areas of the state are right now in the purple, in the most hazardous, most shut down state still. There's a few areas that are being allowed to open up a little bit more, but not that many. So you have these four different categories of what's allowed to uh, open under these conditions. And then you also have these classifications by type of business. So, you know, gyms remain closed, theme parks remain closed, but restaurants are beginning to open a little bit more. And with every time they move up in the system, they get to open up, you know, a few more seats indoors. So it's a real hodgepodge. Critics are saying that it's really rough on some businesses because Nail salons are closed, but barbershops and manicures have been able to open indoors with a few, you know, chairs when they're very similar types of businesses. One San Diego County supervisor says Legoland is closed, but SeaWorld is able to open because it's being classified as a zoo, yeah, uh, it, not a theme park. Right. Legoland so you have classi- these kind of weird contradictions. Yeah, exactly. Legoland classified as a theme park and SeaWorld as a zoo, which, you know, technically I I would probably think it's more of a theme park. It has a roller coaster, I think, you know, things like that. So that's one of the big things. And gyms is another big one. I know larger gyms have kind of largely just remained closed, but smaller boutique gyms are even defying the state's orders in a lot of cases saying, well, we're going to open regardless because we can do it safe. We are wearing masks and social distancing, cleaning everything. 
So I know the gyms has been a particular point of contention throughout this whole thing. That's exactly right. And the issue is that these owners of boutique gyms and lots of these other businesses say, look, I know how I operate my business. I can do this safely. Look at all the safeguards I'm putting into place. You know, a boutique gym, a small gym, the owner there can pretty much keep watch on what everyone's doing and how far apart they are from each other. You know, I was in the Venice section of Los Angeles the other day and was marveling at how there was a gym there that was conducting like exercise classes on the sidewalk outside, probably 20 people, fairly well socially distanced. So they say that's the real problem here, that they know even in counties that still have high rates of coronavirus or relatively high, that they can operate safely, but they're not being allowed to. And as you mentioned at the beginning, right now, pretty much the entire state is in the purple designation, which is coronavirus is widespread. What does it take for a county to get into a lower tier and then be able to reopen more businesses? That's another big frustration for these business owners. They say that the requirement is that a county has to keep its numbers improving for like 21 days before they can move into the next tier. If they show deterioration over those 21 days, they still have to stay in that tier. 21 days is a long time if you own a business. If you've been a salon owner or someone that has a a nail shop, 21 days is a long time to have to stay closed when you see other types of businesses opening. So that's been another sore point for them. Have they made it clear, let's say you get into a lower tier, you're able to start reopening some businesses, obviously with restrictions and all, but let's say cases do tick up. How long do they have before they have to close down again, let's say? Because, you know, a case can tick up one week, jump back down the next week. Are they using that kind of 21-day thing if you're going to go back up a tier again? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. I do understand that local county health departments can sort of impose their own owners and have some flexibility here. In fact, I think there's a fair amount of flexibility in the whole system if they see another health crisis developing or a huge outbreak or something happening, which very well could happen because we've seen these setbacks over the last six months that we've been dealing with this crisis. I don't know exactly what the answer is in terms of what has to happen when, under these guidelines, if things go downhill, because everyone's been so focused on reopening, not shutting down again. Jessica Patterson, she's the chairwoman of the California Republican Party, has said that, you know, there's been four different reopening plans in six months. I don't know if that's exactly the right number, but it has been going up and down. And as I mentioned, there were county watch lists. Now it's this colored tiered system. What has been the reaction from Governor Gavin Newsom and his leadership on this whole thing? I mean, obviously, I know he wants to open things up. Nobody wants businesses to suffer and be closed, but they're just erring on the side of caution with all this. But it really is at the risk of a huge economic impact to the state. Huge economic impact. And, you know, everyone knows it becomes a balance between safety and economic impact. The governor's approach seems to have been kind of take it as it comes. There have been so many twists and turns with this crisis. We learn so many things as time has gone on that have sort of changed the game. So, for instance, as you know, we started with everyone being urged not to wear masks. And then a month or two later, everyone had to wear a mask. So that's what the governor has been facing. You know, he has changed plans. They are modifying things as they go. One could argue from his standpoint that it's a matter of trying to just deal with the best facts as they present themselves and that it's a fluid situation. For business owners, for others that have an economic stake in this, 
it's really frustrating. They don't get one set of rules. They don't have one goalpost. The goalposts move around, as that GOP chairwoman pointed out. And that's a real problem for businesses. Yeah, I mean, that moving goalpost is really probably the most frustrating thing. You want to make a plan to reopen and start making some money, and then things tumble back down and, and rinse and repeat, you know. So that's probably the worst part. But we'll see. As we mentioned, the whole, almost the whole state is in that purple widespread designation right now. So still largely the state of California closed down in a lot of different ways. And as we mentioned, the economic impact, it continues to grow on that. Chris Woodyard, Los Angeles Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me uh, be with you today. In science news, last week, Elon Musk had a presentation for his Neuralink implants. The goal is to mass market brain implants that could solve brain and spine problems. For instance, Musk said they could possibly solve blindness and deafness by using these new implants. The implants are about the size of a large coin and the thickness of the human skull. And for the presentation, Musk trotted out a group of pigs that had the implants and he observed their brain activity. For more on Elon Musk's plan with Neuralink, we'll speak to John Timmer. He's a senior science editor at Ars Technica. The presentation isn't like a scientific study. It was closer to one of his marketing speeches for Tesla or something like that. But there were product demos, so you got some hints of what it was capable of, but you don't know what the typical results are. You see images of what they hope the robotic surgery device will look like, but you don't know if that's actually a functional one or not. So there's a lot of questions left unanswered about it. But what it does give you is a sense of how the company's adjusting compared to what it was saying it intended to do a year ago and how at least some of its initial attempts at something close to a product are performing if we take them at their word. He even said that the goal of this whole presentation was recruiting. They want to get more people involved in the project. I think they have about 100 employees right now, but they need more people to keep this moving and keep advancing it. And as I said, there's just a lot of work yet to be done. Tell us what else happened. So they showed off the robot that would do the surgery. They showed off the actual implant. What did those look like? So the robot, if you saw last year, it was the robot they were showing. It looked a bit like the tortured droid from Star Wars. It was black. It had a lot of things sticking out of it. And it was not something I would consider reassuring if I, I saw that in the operating theater. This year, it's all white. It's all smooth surfaces. Any of the pointy bits that might be used to actually make a hole in the skull are apparently kept internally. So they're starting to think about something that people might seem more comfortable with. But as you said, getting that to actually work is a really hard problem. And we don't know whether any of the pigs they showed that have the implant actually had the surgery performed with a robot or not. It's yeah, yeah. completely unspecified at yeah, this point. Musk said he imagines that that robot would probably do the entire surgery on an actual person. So yeah, he's has yet to be seen. And, th and then the implant itself looks like a big coin, maybe. It's maybe the thickness of it is yeah, the thickness of your skull. Three or four quarters stacked on top of each other, I guess, is probably, and with wires trailing out on one end, which will go in and communicate with the brain itself. So it's quite different. Last year, they were planning on having 
wires running under the skull from where the implant was and things like that. And they've simplified the design down and that will ultimately simplify the surgery. So it looks like they had some ideas at the start and now that they're getting to where they're trying to implement them in experimental animals, they found out that, oh, it might not have been the best idea and they're uh, adjusting accordingly. And then the big part of the presentation, they wanted to show it off and how it works and where they're at so far. So they had three pigs, one that had the implant, one that had the implant before and taken it out, and then like a normal pig. How did that part of the presentation go? Yeah, they actually had a fourth as well that had two implants at once. The most noticeable part of that presentation was a pig called Gertrude, who is the one that has a single active implant, was apparently suffering from stage fright or something and refused to come out for quite a while, leaving Elon Musk stalling for time for a bit. But what they claim they showed is that they were snooping in on activity in the pig's brain in real time. So when Gertrude eventually decided to cooperate, they were feeding her and the implant was listening in on sensory nerves in the pig's snout. And every time the snout made contact with the surface, you'd hear these bursts of activity indicating that it was registering. If that is accurate, then they're at where the state of the art is in the research community. Yeah, it was just a lot of beeps. And as you mentioned, you can't really verify it, so you don't really know. But Okay, so they went through this, all this. What is the future of this? Neuralink, the company, has gotten a breakthrough device designation from the Food and Drug Agency. This just means that they can kind of keep talking to them and keep progressing with the product. But what's the future of this? What's going to happen? In the ideal world, what they're probably going to do is recapitulate some work that's been done over the last decade or so where people who are have all four limbs paralyzed have had brain implants similar but less sophisticated. And they've done things like one woman controlled the robotic arm through the brain implant and was actually able to grab a cup, bring it over and sip from a straw using this robotic hand. There's videos of that available on YouTube. So my guess is that they're going to try to do something similar and again, catch up to where the research community is, but using a device that's designed for mass manufacture and uses more off-the-shelf components than you might get in sort of a one-off research device. I mean, there's amazing potential with this, obviously, and Elon Musk has done a lot of great stuff with Tesla and SpaceX. Can't put it beyond them that they can actually get through with this thing and really make something of it. So just kind of exciting science news and hopefully something comes of it and they can really make this work. It's a really hard problem, a series of hard problems that they still face before getting this to work. And unlike rocket science, a lot of those problems aren't as well understood. So it'll be worth watching over the next few years to see what comes next. John Timmer, Senior Science Editor at Ars Technica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again for your time. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.